And we've come this evening to the altar of incense. We will be in Exodus chapter 30. And if you remember, we started this journey, I think, eight weeks ago tonight. We started in Exodus 25, taking a look at the tabernacle. Remember, the setting is Moses is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he's receiving the instructions directly from God, very precise and specific directions and instructions for how things are supposed to go. And when we started out, uh, David Moo started us in this, uh, in this study, and he said, you know, there's very, there are very specific instructions, and they're here for a purpose. And we were specifically looking at Christ in the tabernacle. And we're even going to see some of those pictures tonight as we move through this altar of incense. So just a quick recap to catch us up to where we're at now. In chapter 25, uh, we, we begun and we got... We started actually with an offering that was going to be taken for the building of the tabernacle. Then we saw the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand. All the instructions were, were listed for those articles, exactly how they were supposed to be built. But curiously enough, the altar of incense, which was another one of the articles that was inside the holy place, it was left out. Of, of those instructions in chapter 25. And some scholars actually debate what's going on there. Some might say that, uh, that, that the altar was a later invention, some say as much as 500 years after, and then it was, it was written back into Exodus 30 to try to you know, piece it back together. But I don't believe that to be the case. I think that there's actually a specific reason why we see it here in this specific order. So most scholars would note that it's because it's right after Aaron's consecration. You know, the last two weeks in in chapter 29, that's what we went through. And so we can say that the the first few chapters, 25 through 29, were really the blueprint of of what was supposed to happen. But then after the consecration, now we're going to get into some of the functionality of the tabernacle. We're going to see it, um, you know, start to take place. We're going to see some of the sacrifices and we're going to see different things happening. So really, this is kind of the the, the nuts and bolts. This is going to be the, the working of what's happening. Again, just recapping, in chapter 26, we saw the instructions for the tabernacle itself, mainly the structure, the the tent, the curtains, the poles, and the sockets, and how everything was supposed to go into place. In 27, we saw the instruction of the courtyard, and we were introduced to the bronze altar. And then in chapter 28, we saw the priestly garments. We saw the ephod and, and the breastplate. We saw the uh, the, the turban, we saw the metal plate holy to the Lord placed on the head of Aaron, the high priest. And then for two weeks in chapter 29, the consecration of Aaron as the priest. So this is where we're going to pick it up. We're going to be in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10. We're also going to skip down to verses 34 and 38. There's kind of uh, two sections that are a little bit apart, but they're clearly uh, dealing with, with the same thing here. So we're going to take a look at that. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me, those that are able, as we read through Exodus 30, beginning in chapter, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering, or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sinner offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. We'll skip all the way down to verse 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, take for yourself spices, stacti and onica and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted 
pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your beautiful and holy word given to us. Father, we pray now that as we dive in, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit. Would you impress upon our hearts and minds what you would have us to hear? And Lord, I pray that you would add and take away from what I've prepared. Lord, may this be your teaching. May these be your words for the edification of your people, Lord. And may we be a people who not just hear your word, but may we be doers of your word. May it sink down deep. May it cause an effectual change in our lives and our hearts. Lord, may we be changed when we leave here tonight because of the power of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we now have a second altar that is mentioned here. We, of course, had the bronze altar that was outside in the courtyard, but as we've moved inside, so to speak, into the holy place, we see another altar. Now, the Hebrew word for altar is mizbeach. It's actually the same word that is used of both of the different altars, but of course, there are other different words that denote one is made of bronze or a brazen altar, and this one is an altar of incense, or also commonly referred to simply as the golden altar. So we have the bronze altar and the golden altar, just for differentiation. You recall that the altar, the bronze altar, was the one used for burning sacrifice, of course, um, namely animals. There were some other types of offerings on it, but namely animals that were burned on that. This one, however, was a little different. It was to be used specifically for burning incense. And there's going to be a few things that these two altars have in common, but we're also going to look at some of the key differences. Uh, three key ones that I'm just going to point out are going to be the size, the material, and the location. So let's look at size first. Starting in verse 2, it says, Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be a one piece with it. You may recall that a cubit is roughly 18 to 20 inches. Um, that number varies a little bit, but it was commonly thought to be the distance of a man's forearm, so approximately from his elbow to the tip of his longest finger. So uh, my cubit may be a little bit longer than some of your cubits just because I'm a little taller, but roughly speaking, we're talking about 18 to 20 inches. And that would uh, basically equate to about a foot and a half square. So you can see this, this really is not a very large altar, especially when we compare with the bronze altar, which was outside. It was roughly five times bigger in terms of length and width. And this one is roughly three feet high, so not too much higher than this uh, little shelf or this little ledge here um, on the pulpit. It was placed inside the holy place, which was itself not really a very big place, probably about 15 feet wide and 30 feet deep. So everything was a little bit proportionate as far as what was going on inside of the holy place versus what was out in the courtyard. Now, just like the brazen altar, this also, uh, also had the command for the horns to be added to the corners or to the sides specifically. And when Pastor Michael was teaching through, we looked at the fact that the horns would often uh, signify power or, or strength. And we think of the horns of an animal, uh, a ram or a goat or someone that they're, they're butting their heads against each other. And so there's this picture of power or strength. On the bronze altar, probably would have signified maybe the power of sin, because the sin would have been the common reminder that people saw. But it also could have signified the power of God to overcome that sin. But as we look at this incense uh, altar tonight, we're going to see that really the connotation is prayer. Prayer is the picture of what's going on here. And so we could say that these horns signify the strength of the power of prayer and the four corners possibly um, denoting that it goes out to all four corners of the earth. We know that the, the temple was later to be declared a house of prayer for all nations. So the prayers of the people would be extended across all of the earth. So that's size. Now we're going to look at material. Verse 3 says that you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding around it. This gold molding was a little bit different. We can think of uh, maybe like a modern-day crown molding, something that was a little decorative. This uh, incense altar, if that picture's still up there, you can see all the way around the, the top, it has a little bit of a, a decorative aspect to it, far more so than the bronze altar would have had. And gold, of course, is speaking, um, you know, as an expensive metal, it's speaking of the glory of God. 
the bronze altar, and bronze in general uh, probably speaks of, of judgment, and we see the sacrifices being uh, performed there. But gold is going to speak of, of glory and, and royalty. And so all of the pieces that are in the holy place are, of course, going to be constructed of gold. This is going to be set apart as a special, a special tool, a special article that will be used to glorify God. Verse 4 says, you shall make two gold rings for under its molding. You shall make with them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and there will be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So this is really a repeat of what we've seen before with the other articles, uh, with the ark and then with the table of showbread and with the bronze altar. They were all fitted that way with, with holes and rings, and the poles would have been slid through. Now, they were removed, of course, when it was to be moved. The ark was the only one in which the, the poles remained attached. But the other um, articles, the poles would have been removed. Interestingly enough, this article says that there's actually two uh, holes that would be placed on it. Now, if we look at this picture, and some of your translation might actually say that there were two holes, two on each side, and it's kind of interesting. But if you look at all the other articles, in the Hebrew, it actually specifically denotes that there were um, four holes on each of those other pieces. And the wording is all the same when it talks about them. But on this particular article, it actually says that there were only two holes. And there's actually some people that believe that because of the way those, those holes were, that they would have been on the corners and there actually would have been even a different orientation of the way this would have faced. And I know that gets a little bit into the weeds there, but for some of you that are a little nerdy like me and like to study, I'll just lay that before you and you can, uh, you can pick up on that and read a little bit more about how exactly this was made. And so our third uh, differentiation that we'll look at now is the location where this was placed. Verse 6 tells us that you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. So again, unlike the first, this one is located inside of the holy place of the tabernacle. It was just outside of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies, you'll remember, was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the only piece of furniture that was in there. Inside the holy place, we had the table of showbread, the lampstand, and then now our third article, the altar of incense. And so if you were to, I'll, I'll turn this way, if you were to walk into the holy place, you would have the table of showbread on your right, again, only about 15 feet wide and 30 feet deep, the table of showbread on your right, the lampstand on your left, and the, the veil would extend at least 15 feet up into the air in front of you. Beyond that, the Ark of the Covenant. And just in front of that veil would have been the altar of incense. Again, there's some debate on the exact placement, but most scholars seem to agree that that's where it would be. And it was probably placed very near that veil. And we'll get into that in a minute as we go a little bit further. So the first set of instructions that we've been given here on this altar are, are basically now complete. We're dealing with the blueprint, if you will. Kind of struck me this week as, as this has progressed almost all of the articles that have been introduced from chapter 25 until now. We've been given very specific details on how it's supposed to look but we haven't really been given details on the functionality, how it's actually supposed to happen, what's supposed to be carried out with these articles. And I made a very odd connection. My uh, daughter just turned two about a week and a half ago, and we had a birthday party for her. And so, of course, we get all sorts of gifts and toys, which is great you know, for her, but then mom and dad have to assemble everything, right? So you open up the box, and you take out the instruction manual. And usually the first couple pages are going to tell you all of the, the parts that you're going to need, and probably you're missing a few anyway, but it's, here's all the parts that you're going to need, and then this is what it's going to look like. This is how to assemble it. What that portion doesn't tell you is how to use it, okay? That's in a separate portion, usually a little later in the instruction manual. Hopefully you're all tracking with me and know what I'm talking about here. So up to this point, we've just seen how to build it. But now we're going to take a little bit of a turn. We're going to go a little more in depth, and we're going to see the functionality and what was supposed to happen, at least with this article. And then Pastor John next week is going to pick up, maybe the next two weeks, pick up on the labor uh, and a few other things. And, and we're going to get a little bit more in depth on the purpose of those articles as well. So verse 7 tells us that Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. 
Verse 8, when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So we now know the purpose of the altar was to burn incense. We know it's called an incense altar, but what was the function? What was happening? And we see that it was required to be burnt two times a day, in the morning and in the evening. It was when Aaron would have gone in and tended to the lamps, he would have trimmed the wicks and topped off uh, a little bit of oil in there to make sure that they, they kept burning. Those were to be burning perpetually as well. And then incense would be added onto the altar, this incense that we read about in verses 34 to 38. So then in the evening, Aaron would re-enter. He would repeat that same process, morning and evening. But just like the other altar, there was to be a perpetual offering happening. So twice a day, it was kind of topped off, if you will. But there was this constant uh, incense that was, that was burning. There was smoke arising from this incense altar constantly, 24-7, around the clock. This is what the Lord has prescribed. Now, it's called a fragrant incense in a lot of your translations, um, the bronze altar, altar was also said to have a fragrant uh, aroma uh, from the animals that were sacrificed on it. But as we learned a little bit with that, a little bit different, right? That was a, a very gruesome, bloody scene out in the courtyard with animals and blood and organs and all kinds of stuff. Hopefully you guys don't lose your dinner on me, but uh, it wasn't a pretty sight. And sometimes we hear people talk about the smell. Oh, it must have smelled like barbecue. You know, meat was going. Eh, maybe, but I don't know that many of you normally cook your meat with a whole bunch of blood everywhere and organs all over the place. So it's a little bit different. The, the sheer quantity of the number of animals would have been uh, just mind-blowing. So the offering was certainly fragrant, but not in the way that we would like to think. This altar, however, was different. So this was referred to if you have a King James or a New King James, it would say that it's a sweet incense. The Hebrew word refers to a sweet-smelling spice of sorts, just kind of generally speaking. And the aroma from the altar is said to have completely filled the holy place. Again, 15 by 30, not very big. We can think of sometimes when we might burn a candle at home or something, how, how quickly that smell kind of permeates the, the whole room, let alone the whole entire house. And so that's what would have happened. It would have filled the entire holy place with this sweet-smelling aroma. You might also think of some of those sweet-smelling, uh, spicy smells around the holidays. You know, Christmas time, you go over to someone's house and someone's baking something good. You walk in the home and it just smells great, right? You all know what I'm talking about there. It's, it's just a great, um, it's a great smell. A lot of times it brings back memories for us. It, it's comforting. It's, it's a bunch of different things. But that's kind of the, the picture of the sweet-smelling aroma that would have permeated the entire holy place. So we know that physically incense is being burned, but what's happening? I mentioned earlier that really the picture here is that of prayer, that the incense arising, the smoke arising and going up to the heavens signifies the prayers of the people. There's a few people that say that even the sweet incense was to you know, counteract that stench that was there from uh, the sacrifices and the bronze altars to, to mask it, to cover it up. In Leviticus 16, we actually have instructions for the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And it says that he was supposed to carry in some of the incense beyond the veil into the, the Holy of Holies, and that the cloud of smoke was actually supposed to sort of cover the mercy seat and the ark. And it actually says uh, regarding Aaron, it says that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. We know that no one can see God and live. And so this is, in a sense, another type of, of veil or, or, or covering that is separating Aaron as he would go in for the day of an atonement. But let's look at how incense is related to the prayers of the people. Psalm 141 uh, is a psalm of David, and David says these words. He says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. So we can see that David is likening his prayers to the incense placed before the Lord and rising into the heavens. And even was specifically noting the times of prayers, uh, referring to the evening offering that was taking place. And so as this incense was being offered morning and night by Aaron or later by any other uh, priest, 
we know that the priest would be in prayer, but that the entire assembly or the congregation would be in prayer as well. And we'll take a look at that shortly. In regard to prayer um, uh, being this picture of the incense, in Revelation 5.8, it says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Three chapters later in Revelation 8, it says, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. These two verses in Revelation are, again, just further evidence that we see that this is what the purpose of the incense was. We know that everything that was here on earth was just a copy of what was to come. It was a shadow of what was to come. And specifically in Revelation, we, we get a glimpse, or at least John gets this vision, this glimpse into the heavenly throne room to see what's happening. And he saw the fulfillment, really, of what was going on here in the tabernacle and, and later even in the temple. Again, those were just copies of what was to come. Hebrews 8.5 tells us that. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And Moses was actually warned by God, Hebrews says, that he make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. There's a specific reason why everything needs to be done according to all of these dimensions, according to all of these patterns. All of the different commands that the Lord gave were for a purpose. And some of those things we have now seen already, and some of those things we will still see uh, in the future. There will be a future fulfillment of that. So today, in terms of our partial fulfillment, we know that Jesus has already come. Jesus, as the great high priest, he's, he's torn that veil of, of the temple in two, figuratively speaking. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and there he, he ever lives to intercede for us, to intercede for you and for me. He is our great high priest. Hebrews 10 tells us that we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, beyond the veil, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That is his body. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Romans 8, 34. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7, 25. And towards the end of Revelation in chapter 12, we're told that the accuser of the brethren, Satan, stands before God day and night seeking to accuse us. We're all familiar with that. But thanks be to God that we have a great high priest that is there that ever lives to intercede for us. He is our advocate before the Father, pleading our case on our behalf. And so this explains why Christians, we, play, we pray, excuse me, in Jesus' name. This is much more than just uh, a little sign-off kind of a thing at the end of a letter. People might sign off the end of their letter, you know, sincerely yours or something like that. A lot of people, oh, you just say in Jesus' name at the end. You, you tag it on, and maybe that gives it some sort of, of holy power. But really, that establishes the basis for our praying to God at all. Through Jesus Christ is the only way we have access. Back at this time, the high priest was the only one that had that access, and that once a year. And the individual people, the congregation, couldn't even come to make prayers. The high priest had to make the atonement and the prayers on behalf of the people. But we now have that direct access to our God. There's a famous hymn by John Newton, and it begins with an invitation to prayer based on what the priest did and their functioning in the tabernacle. The hymn starts like this, Approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. The question is, what gives us the right to come to God in prayer? We know that it's only the atonement that Jesus has made for our sins. That's the only way that we have access, by his dying on the cross. And so to end this hymn, Newton adds this, O wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Into the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, we see another picture 
actually of the altar of incense. We see the prayers being offered. And that's in Luke 1, verse 8. And that's the story of Zecharias, the husband of Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. And you'll recall the story that he, um, he was in a, a certain line in a certain division. And it came that they drew lots for who would go into the temple and who would minister uh, at the altar of incense. And he drew the lot and he went in. It was his turn to go in. And it says in verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar was of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. See, the time for offering incense was also a time for intercession. The priest would be inside uh, praying and interceding on behalf of the people, but the people of the congregation would be outside praying as well. And as the people prayed and as the, pe- the priest excuse me, prayed for the people, the incense was symbolic of their prayers that were ascending up to the throne of God. So here Zacharias was in prayer for himself as well as he was for the people. And the angel of the Lord appeared and said, your prayer has been answered. So was he praying for that son at that time? We don't know for sure, but it's likely. We know, obviously, at some point he had to have prayed because his prayer had been heard. So he could have been praying for years for this. We know um, from the rest of the story that him and his wife were both a little bit advanced in years, that she was barren up until this point. But how interesting that actually at the hour of prayer, at the time that the incense was going up and the congregation was gathered, at that very moment, the angel of the Lord appeared and answered the prayer. Back to Exodus and in verse 9, God commands, you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Now, there's some strict uh, stipulations here, if you will, and this is, again, not by accident. Other altars uh, may have been allowed to have different types of things placed on them, but this one, not so. It was only to be used for the certain type of incense and only for the certain holy incense, really. There was no burnt offering, no, no grain offering, meal offering, such as would be offered on the bronze altar from time to time. None of that was to be offered here. This was to be holy. It was to be set apart. And so as we skip down to that lower section of Exodus 30, let's look a little bit more at the incense itself. Verse 34, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacti, and anika, and galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves, and it shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. So moving quickly here through some of the spices, stacti is, the, is actually a Greek uh, borrowed word for a Hebrew word, nataf, and it literally means drops, which is very interesting. In this whole list of spices, frankincense is actually the only one that there's consensus on, that they know that's exactly what it is. The others are a little bit vague. So drops, it says, but it actually refers to this thick kind of a sap that would ooze or or drop out of a tree. And it's probably what we commonly know today as myrrh. That's probably what this is referring to. Uh, It comes out in this resin-like sap. Some of your translations, your English translation might call it gum resin or resin. So referring mainly to myrrh. Um, Annika is likely the shell of a mussel-like ocean creature. Very interesting how they decided to... uh, God gave the plans to source some of these so-called spices, but there was a mussel-like ocean creature. They would take the shell and scrape it and grind it up into a fine powder. And apparently, it was said to have had this very strong, pungent, and aromatic smell. Galbanum, another type of gum resin, was, was produced from another type of plant called ferula. And according to other Jewish traditions outside of the Bible, such as uh, the Midrash, uh, specifically referring to the incense that was later used in the temple, 
And from what we know, it was most likely the, the same ingredients. It was the same incense used here in the tabernacle time that would later be used in the temple. But what was used in the temple was actually a mixture of 11 different spices that were all put together. But again, there's, there's a lot of uh, debate on that. We don't know exactly what it is. But we do know that there were consequences for people that didn't use it correctly or people that mixed it incorrectly or used a strange fire. Verse 9 tells us that and verse 38 tell us that these strict consequences. It was much like some of the stories surrounding the Ark of the Covenant where people weren't um, supposed to touch it, right? But when they touched it, maybe to steady it, they were, they were struck down dead on the spot. And in similar ways, we see some consequences. Leviticus 10 tells us that Nadab and Abihu, who are two of Aaron's sons, uh, were apparently having a little bit too much to drink and decided to go into the temple and to offer a strange fire what was expressly prohibited in this section, a strange fire, a different type of incense was to, uh, they put on the altar and they were struck dead on the spot. That's in Leviticus 10. Then later, uh, in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah entered the temple and in uh, a little fit of pride decided that he was good enough to go in, even though he was not the high priest, who was the only one that was allowed to go in. He went in and he was going to offer incense on the altar. And he went in and the, immediately the priests that were with him noticed that there was leprosy that had broken out on his forehead. They got him out of there as, as quick as he could. And the end of the story says that King Uzziah had leprosy to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house, afflicted as he was with leprosy, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. That's exactly what we were told, that anyone who offered a strange fire or anyone who used it in an inappropriate manner would be cut off from the house of the Lord. And so it went with King Uzziah. Now, some years ago, I had the privilege to travel to Israel um, several different times. And I think it was on my first trip there about 2012. Um, wow, 10 years ago now. Time flies. Anyway, we went to the Temple Institute, and it's this, this beautiful museum and uh, nonprofit organization where they're actually reconstructing the articles for use in the Third Temple. That's what the Jewish people are hoping for, that they would gain control of Temple Mount, they could rebuild the Third Temple, and once again begin offering sacrifices. So all of these uh, articles that we've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about next week, they have the actual articles already set up. They have a bronze labor. They have a bronze altar. They have an altar of incense. And while you're there, they get you in the tourist trap, of course, and they sell you all these little models, these little scale models. Oh, that'd be cool to have a little scale model. So I bought one, the altar of incense. And it came with a little tea light, and you could put some little incense on top, and you could take it home, and you can burn it. I thought, wow, this is great. So uh, I, at that time, I was a part of another church uh, on the other side of town, and I came back home, and I put it in my office, and I would light it in the office, you know, and it, this strong aroma would, would come out of it. It was... Uh, I loved it. Some people apparently uh, had different olfactory senses, I guess, and they didn't appreciate it as much as I did. They weren't as holy as me, I guess. Um, so one day I, had, I, I lit the uh, little incense altar, and there goes the incense, and uh, we had an event on the other side of the campus, pretty far away. I mean, we're, we're many hundreds of yards away in another building. Well, I left the incense altar burning. I didn't really think anything of it. And as I was at this event, I got a phone call from a friend that says, hey, uh, I, I think your thing's like burning in the office. And people used to complain that the smell was so pungent. And I thought, oh, he's just complaining that the smell's a little strong. Well, of course it's burning. I left the little tea light on. Well, about an hour later, I come back and I open the main door into the office and there's this thick cloud of smoke just filling the, the entire room. And I walk, you know, down the hallway. I'm like trying to, you know, cut through the smoke. I go down the hallway into my office. And there on my uh, conference table is just a pile of ashes. The, the whole thing had, had completely gone up in flames. And I remember telling the guy, well, why didn't you tell me that it caught on fire? You know, it's very different than it smells a little bit strong. Like, no, this whole thing had caught on fire. The saving grace was the conference table was made out of glass, not wood. And thankfully, uh, it didn't burn down. Or we probably would have had one less church on Ontario Avenue in Corona. So um, anyway, the next year I go back to the Temple Institute and kind of, you know, jokingly tell the guy, I said, well, do you offer like refunds if they, you know, burn up? I mean, this is, this is what happened to mine. I don't know why this happened. And the guy said, you offer strange fire. You offer strange fire on that. God, God punishes you. Thought, wow, okay. 
That's interesting. So apparently, um, I wasn't struck down. I wasn't cut off from the people. So that was a good thing. I guess I'd rather have just the altar go up in smoke. But uh, interestingly enough, I, I was really just going over that uh, story in my head this week as I was studying this and really seeing that, you know, all jokes aside, God takes these kind of things very seriously. Now, what they told me over there was, well, we don't use the exact 11 uh, spices and mix them together. We only use 10, so it's not exactly the same holy spice. But I learned my lesson. I decided not to buy another one, and have since had no more incidents. But nevertheless, you, uh, you obviously had to light this incense. So what Aaron would have done as the high priest is he would have actually taken coals from outside, from the bronze altar, and brought them in. And those coals would have been used to light this offer, uh, this um, incense altar. And so we see that there's a connection between the outer and the inner, between the courtyard and the holy place, um, that the hot coals that once accepted the offerings of the people were now the same coals that were used to provide the sweet aroma for the burning incense that represented the prayers of the people. And so as we think of these spices on their own, they certainly had a sense. I mentioned earlier talking about candles. I love candles, and I love burning incense. But I don't, I don't burn incense anymore, but I still burn candles. So you're all familiar. You, know, you, you get a candle as a gift, or you go buy one, and you pop the lid off and smell it. Wow, and it, it smells great, right? And if you were to set it down here and, uh, and maybe walk by, every once in a while you might catch a whiff of it. But until you light it, it doesn't really smell, Right? Until you actually put fire to it, until you light that wick, that's when all of a sudden the aroma becomes intensified. That's when it become, starts to, to fill the room and, and the smoke and the aroma really uh, takes off. And so our prayers really have that same sort of a thing. And when we think of fire, we think of how does fire relate to incense? We commonly think of fire as what? The Holy Spirit. Acts 2, Pentecost. So what about when we think about adding the fire of the Holy Spirit to our prayers? We think about our prayers being fueled by the Spirit, if you will. Our prayers being aligned with God. How much more fragrant, how much more sweet-smelling to God do our prayers become? On our own accord, our, our prayers might be okay. They might give off a little bit of fragrance. But when they're ignited by the Spirit, when they're aligned with God's will, that's when God is most pleased with the sweet-smelling aroma of our prayers. We can even take it a step further if we think of some of that imagery and think of trials we face. We think of fire and, and a fiery furnace, and we can think that a lot of times when the fire heats up, so to speak, and, and we're in a little bit of a trial, we're in something difficult, our prayers usually intensify, do they not? A lot of times we might be praying when everything's going good and everything's okay, but when the fire kicks up a little bit, and we're under a little bit of a pressure, our prayers should hopefully be intensified. We should be crying out to the Lord. One commentator writes this, Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But many people pray as though God should give his approval to their selfish plans and purposes. Such prayers amount to using the sacred incense for the common purpose, a sin for which an Israelite was to be cut off from God's holy assembly. To pray in the Spirit is to pray according to the will of God and not according to our own selfish will. Prayer is more than just making our requests known to God. It is hearing his still voice in the midst of all the noise and confusion of daily life. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance to God's will. Romans 8. Just as the Spirit takes what belongs to Christ and makes it known to us, to pray in the Spirit is to pray in complete submission and harmony with His will and purpose. And this is our priestly duty. Back to Exodus, and in verse 10, it says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, there's two types of atonement that would have been offered on this incense uh, altar. One would have been just a regular sin offering that's mentioned in Leviticus 4, if you're taking notes. 
And then the other in Leviticus 16 I mentioned earlier is the instructions for the Day of the Atonement and what the high priest was supposed to do when he went in. And this was really to cleanse and to purify or to atone for the altar itself. So there was a sin offering in Leviticus 4, and and that would have been sprinkled on just as a sin offering for the people. But on the Day of Atonement, there was an atoning and really uh, kind of a, a cleansing, a purging of the altar itself. Remember that without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. And if there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no ability for us to approach the altar to the throne of God. There had to be the shedding of blood that was applied to the altar to make it holy. In uh, Isaiah 1 and in Jeremiah 9, there's two different sections that talk about God despising the prayers and the offering and the worship of people who are sinful, people who regard iniquity in their hearts. I just wrote in my notes that true prayer and true worship cannot exist where sin and iniquity remain. Now, as we think of the blood cleansing uh, and we think of this, this tabernacle area being cleansed and that having to happen before the prayers were offered up, we can also think to the Gospels. And we think of Jesus going into the temple and we know that Jesus, what? He cleansed the, the temple. All four Gospel accounts give this story, that Jesus goes in and he flips the tables of the money changers and he drives them out. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so Jesus, metaphorically, he cleanses the temple that was supposed to be a house of prayer. And we think of this atonement on this altar, we see that Jesus did that as well. Jesus is our great high priest, much like the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go in and sprinkle that blood. Jesus went in and sprinkled blood. But it wasn't the blood of bulls and rams. It was his blood. He bought us with his blood. He was the perfect, ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 9 tells us that when Christ appeared as a priest of good things to come, he entered, speaking of into the holy place, through greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the place, the holy place, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. As we see in Revelation, there is an altar in heaven that has had the blood applied to it. It no longer needs to happen year by year. There's no longer a need for uh, a day of atonement because Jesus has applied the blood once and for all. It is the sweet blood of his sacrifice. Excuse me. That's, um, that sprinkles the sweet altar of our prayers. Now, there's a potential application for us here as we take a look at this. And that's when we get into a place of prayer, or before we come to a place of prayer, really, we need to make sure that we are cleansed, that we are free of impurities, we're free of distractions even, things that might prevent us. Now, of course, we know that we are cleansed in a sense, of course, we just talked about that, that Jesus Christ has cleansed us and we are clean by his blood. But at the same time, if we are to regard iniquity in our hearts, we can still create that barrier between us and God. And we can have prayers that are not answered. We have uh, prayers that can be hindered. Verse 35 gives us really a great picture of how we and really our prayers are supposed to be. Verse 35 says, with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer. Three things, salted, pure, and holy. The salt speaks of preservation or being preserved. It would have preserved, in an actual sense, the other spices in this mixture, uh, in the incense. But it speaks not just of an actual uh, preservation, but a symbolic preservation as well. The incense was to be preserved throughout all generations. It was to be perpetually holy and perpetually pure. And our prayers, likewise, should be salted, if you will. We should seek to preserve others through our prayers. We can be praying for unbelievers. We can be praying for others to experience salvation and have that eternal preservation. When we think of pure, we think of cleanness. And that can be in a physical sense. It can also be in a ceremonial sense. And our prayers should not be selfish, 
but they should be clean. They should be pure. They should be really focused on others. They should be focused on the will of God and what He has in our lives and in the lives of others. When our prayers are selfish, they aren't clean. They aren't pure. And we think of the word holy, the Hebrew word kadosh. We looked at that in regards to Aaron and the high priest and the the plate that was on his head that read holy to the Lord, meaning to be set apart, to be different, to be sacred. And we as God's people are set apart. We are holy. We are called to be different. Not because of who we are, anything we've done, of course, but because of him, we are called to be set apart. And our prayers should be holy and set apart. Again, they should be more aligned with his will. Our prayers should look different than an unbeliever. We know that unbelievers do pray, right? We hear in our culture lots of times people talk about, you know, they're, they're sending thoughts and prayers, and we don't necessarily know who they're praying to, but we know that if they are not praying to the right one, then those prayers, of course, are not being heard. And so a holy prayer is really centered around God's holiness and who he is, and maybe even in a sense our holiness. We can be praying for, for the sanctification, that work of sanctification in our lives. We know that God's the only one that does that work, but those are things that we can be praying for. And so our final sort of response to this text, you know, how does this really impact our lives? We think, well, this was, this was only in the tabernacle. It doesn't exist anymore. Sure, it's cool that there's this great picture of, you know, the smoke rising and it's supposed to be the, the prayers of the people, but, but what does that mean for us today? What's our response to this? We know that prayer was really an important part of the daily ministry for the priests of God. They did it morning and they did it evening. And it should be an important part of our ministry as well. Maybe that's a starting point, maybe morning and evening. Many of you might be there where you're praying morning and evening, and you're praying all throughout the day. But there might be some of you that that aren't praying morning and evening. There might be some of you that are praying once a week, that are praying maybe only when trouble arises and, and you need a little bit of help. Now, that's not bad. God listens to those prayers, but really prayer is an important ministry that we should be engaging in. 1 Timothy 2 says this, I urge, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Jesus, our high priest, is always interceding for us at the right hand of God. And we too have a priestly duty. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And we, in a sense, act as priests. We have the ability to approach the throne of God and pray. Back then, the people couldn't do that. It was a privilege that I think they would have, that they would have loved to have. They would have loved to have been able to communicate with God in the way that you and I have today. But I think we take that for granted. During his imminent arrest, trial, and torture, uh, and then ultimately crucifixion, Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, and it was famously others-focused. It was on behalf of all those that he was going to be leaving behind. Everything that was awaiting him, he wasn't praying for that. He was praying for those that would remain behind. He prayed for their unity. He prayed for God to keep them, to bring them together. You could say that he wasn't looking out for his own personal interests, as Philippians Two talks about, but that he was looking out for the interests of others, and that is a model that we can follow. Remember that the tabernacle incense offering, this is just reading from my notes, and privilege of prayer belonged only to the priests, as I just mentioned. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been given an even greater privilege. Through the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, we have been granted immediate access to the throne room of Almighty God. We are able to approach him at any time, day or night, for any reason. We can ask him to establish his kingdom by advancing the work and witness of his church around the world. We can ask him to do his will in our lives in any and every way that will bring him glory. We can ask him to supply all our needs. We can ask him to forgive our sins. We can ask him to protect us from spiritual attack. 
What an amazing opportunity. Who would neglect to take advantage of such an extraordinary privilege? Sadly, countless Christians neglect the privilege of prayer every day. We do not pray for God's kingdom to come. We do not ask for his will to be done. We do not ask for him for daily provision, protection, and pardon. To put it bluntly, by our neglect, we despise the sweet altar of prayer. And in doing this, we really despise the cross of Christ because our privilege to pray was purchased by his blood. Now, I don't say that to beat anyone over the head and to make anyone feel bad. Know that as I was preparing this week, that's the reality that I had to face. I had to look at how often I, I approached that altar, that I came to the Lord in prayer, asking for the things, not just that I want or need, but really the things that I should be asking. And so my encouragement to you is not to neglect that sweet altar of prayer. Don't neglect going to it. And I'd ask, have you, have you come to that altar today? Did you go to it yesterday? Will you go to it tomorrow? Don't neglect the opportunity that we have been given to pray to the Almighty God. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read one last scripture and we're actually going to take a little bit of time uh, putting some of this into practice tonight. So normally we close with our song and worship and then we have prayer here up at the front after with the leaders and pastors. But before that last closing song, we're going to take about five minutes and we're going to spend time in prayer. Uh, the ladies are going to come on out and lead us um, just in some quiet worship. And I'm going to ask that you would just pray however you feel led to pray. If you want to pray by yourself, if you want to pray with someone else sitting next to you, with a family member, a friend, or maybe it's a stranger. If you want to pray quietly, if you want to pray out loud, if you want to pray sitting down, standing up on your knees, but we will have some leaders up here as well if you'd like to come forward to pray. But we're going to take that time to pray together. We're going to hope that there is a, a sweet aroma of incense that arises from this building tonight that goes up to the throne of God. So let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you so much for, again, your beautiful word and how it speaks to us, how it is a picture of what has already come in the person of Jesus Christ, and even more importantly, what is to come with his second coming and with, with the future a heavenly glory that we get to partake in, Lord. We thank you for the salvation that we have in you, only through you, Lord. We know that it is by grace, through faith, that we are saved, Father. So I thank you for the great salvation that you have offered to us. I pray that if anyone doesn't have that salvation or they're, they're curious or, or they're wondering that they would come up, that they would talk, that they would seek prayer uh, from some of the leaders here. And Father, would you just fill this place tonight, Lord, with your spirit? Would you uh, be pleased with the sweet incense of our prayers, Lord? Not because our prayers in and of themselves are, are worthy of anything, Lord, but only because they're aligned with your will, because they're ignited by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. May they be a sweet-smelling aroma to you, Father. So may we just take this time. Uh, may we come to you, Lord. May we not forget the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, that you tore the veil open, that you granted access into that holy of holies, Lord, that it was your blood that was sprinkled on that altar that made it pure, that granted us that access, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.